you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Joshua chapter 7 is where we'll be today. If you recall the times that I've been able to share with you before leading up to this, except for the time uh, right around Christmas, we've been in Joshua. And it's about fearless living. It continues to amaze me that uh, the Lord took me to this about a year or so ago and to live fearlessly. You know, it began as the pandemic and, and COVID and the things that really gripped not just our nation, but the entire world with a degree of fear that's probably not been realized in the history, at least, that we've lived through. But in that, even today, and we look at the headlines, we do not know what's going to happen between the border of Russia and Ukraine. We do not know what President Putin will do. We do not know how the president of this nation will respond. We do not know. But can you join with me in complete confidence this morning as a redeemed church that God knows? And that is absolutely our promise that we hold on to. That is how you keep perspective. And with that, today's title, if you want to have one, and you don't throw away your outline that you have, just turn it over, okay, and all those blank lines, you'll have opportunity to fill in here in just a moment. But uh, Brother Ray, I'm sure, will come back to that next week. If not, he'll come through the doors in a minute if he lo- listens to my jokes. <laughs> but as we have experienced maybe a loss of perspective in what we are dealing with in today's culture, it reminded me of what I've been through personally just in the past few weeks I know you may think, Chuck, you're very young and you should not have cataract surgery, but you would be wrong about having cataract surgery at least. Uh, In the past month or so, I've had cataract surgery on both eyes, and I had no idea, choir, that you guys were now veiled behind a sepia lens. Uh, When I had my left eye done, I was seeing clearly. Ryan, I could see you so clearly. Amy, you were still in the sepia lens in my right eye. But when I got both eyes done, I realized what perspective I had lost, and I didn't even realize I'd lost it. And so that's why I'm going to sport some of Monica's readers today, and I'm just telling you that so you won't laugh at me, because I'm so new at this cataract surgery, I can see you amazingly. The pages, maybe not so much. I've just lost that type of vision. So if you see me slip on these really, really cool-looking readers, aren't they sporty? My wife has about 10 of these around the house, and I thought she won't miss one if I take it this morning. That way I can actually read what the Lord has laid me on my heart to share with you. But loss of perspective. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to chapter 7 of Joshua. And we'll go through the entire chapter, believe it or not, but just for the purposes of us reading Scripture together and looking to what the Lord would have us to understand In the context of losing perspective, I want to ask you to stand with me as we look at verses 6 through 9 of chapter 7 of Joshua. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. Oh, Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? 
If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies? When the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Then what will you do about your great name? Father, it is in the name of Jesus that we come before you. And I ask you now, Lord, that you mute anything that has its origin within me. But, Father, you would amplify everything that the Holy Spirit would have us hear and comprehend and apply for our lives to love you with everything that we have, even our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our strength. Father, reveal to us new truths as you remind us of things we've heard in the past. For your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we find here in the beginnings of chapter 7 a very important principle. And this will be from the, one of the first things you write down. We're not to the outline yet, but just I'm just going to try to just go through this and say, Hey, here's a good takeaway. Because I'm, I'm, I'm hearing the message for the first time as well, okay? So as we look through this together, we find a very important principle in this chapter. Success is sometimes more difficult to handle than failure. Success is sometimes, I would dare say often, more difficult to handle than failure. We are most vulnerable, church. We are most vulnerable for the evil one, for Satan, for the devil to lead us into sin when we are successful. The book of Joshua that we've been in and that we're looking at today records two great successes. You'll recall these as your stories if you've been in Sunday school or church in your life. The crossing of the Jordan and the fall of Jericho. Now we come to chapter 7, which brings, begins with a sad introduction. So look back with me in Scripture and see, maybe look, let's, let's look at chapter 6, verse 27. And this will really bring home the contradiction that's going on here. And the Lord was with Joshua. That's good news, right? The Lord was with Joshua. The Lord is with Ridgecrest. The Lord is with the choir. The Lord is with the orchestra. The Lord is with the music leaders. The Lord is with the congregation. The Lord is with an assistant pastor. The Lord is with you. That is good. Amen? So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread. He was favored throughout all the land. That's a good ending to chapter 6. They had, the walls of Jericho had come down. Rahab and her family had been saved because of her faith in God Almighty. All these things were looking, and it, this was a good ending. Chapter 7. The Israelites, however were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. This sad beginning of this part of the story, the Lord had commanded, not suggested. Do the Lord's commands ever change into suggestions? 
The answer is no. The Lord's commands stay commands. He is immutable. He never changes in that way. Yes, we'll look at His omniscience. We know His omnipotence. We know His omnipresence. But we know that God in His character and in His attributes does not change. So His commands stay commands. The Lord had commanded all the precious metals, if you remember in chapter 6, taken from the conquest of Jericho, be put in His treasury. That's in verse 19, if you want to go back and look at that. But Achan, from the tribe of Judah, disobeys this command, and the Lord's anger burns against Israel. No one, no one as we make choices to sin. By the way, that's a good theological statement. What's the reason you sin? You choose to. Many of you, maybe around my age, will remember a comedian named Flip Wilson. He had a show. There you go. He had a show, and he always, he, he, he had that one line. What is, the devil made me do it. That's a lie. The devil cannot make you do anything. He can tempt you. He cannot make you do anything. You choose to. You choose to. You choose to. So in this, no one, certainly not Achan, has or had any idea of the ultimate cost of sin. Do you take time out and say, you know what? Lord, give me a 30,000-foot view. Before I gossip, I, would you let me know the ultimate cost of that sin? Probably not. Maybe we should. But Achan had no idea of the ultimate cost of his sin. He probably thought a little gold here and a little silver there could hardly make any difference. I mean, the whole land of Canaan would eventually yield up everything anyway to the conquering army. There must have been a lot of loot lying everywhere around Jericho during and after the battle. Certainly, God didn't need it all. It reminds me, really, and not to chase much of a rabbit, but I thought it was a good illustration and plus it was just good information, it, it kind of brought home a point to me about how the government of the United States uh, spends money. I'm clueless of how the money is spent. I'll just be honest with you. For example, the, the budget, which is still is not passed as far as I know, right? Y'all let me know. It, you, remember back in May how much the budget was supposed to be for 2022? $6 trillion dollars. Well, I, I have a hard time comprehending that number. It's, it's really incomprehensible so much so that mathematicians don't even use the word. No person reading this, this is amazing to me, no person understanding this, do you know no one in here has lived a trillion seconds? Has that ever dawned on you? In fact, this country has not existed for a trillion, one trillion seconds. Western civilization has not been around for a trillion seconds. One trillion seconds, the best I could do in my math, I'm low-hanging fruit kind of a guy, but it's amazing what Google can do for you. One trillion seconds is approximately 31,688 years. One 
trillion seconds. If we stacked six million dollar bills, the proposed budget, the pile would stretch nearly 433,257 miles. That's almost to the moon and back, or 17 laps around our globe. That's a lot. That's stacking $1 bills. That's how far it'd be, six trillion of them. Hidden cost. Dollars going here and there, often completely unknown to the taxpayer. Now listen, imagine how many churches try to see God's blessing and move forward while hidden costs hamper our spiritual and numerical growth. How many congregations have an aching in the camp with some sin buried deep in his tent? some Babylonian robe stashed in the depths of their closet. This chapter deals with sin, punishment, failure to repent, and how an omniscient God knows all of it. I cannot fathom, Aaron, a trillion dollars. I know I can't spend that much. But I know God knows every dime, just as He knows my every thought and holds me accountable for any violation of His Word and His will. So if you're taking notes, and I trust you are because you just want to encourage me so much, the first part of this story that I would want us to understand is the pain of sin. The pain of sin. Our sin affects other people. Amen? Our sin does affect other people. We will clearly see this as we unfold this chapter before us. Joshua is sending some men out to Ai. Look with me back into the Word of God, and you'll see there in that sad beginning, the Israelites, however, were unfaithful. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, and son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart in the Lord's anger burning against the Israelites. Joshua sent men. Now, Joshua is unaware of what has happened in Achan's home and Achan's life. So Joshua, now he has been favored, the Lord was with him. But yet he had missed something. And so Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. Now Ai, is, is, it, it could be a, a town or it could be just a location that men from other towns were coming to battle against the nation of Israel. Really doesn't matter in what we're reading today. So the, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, which is destruction, east of Bethel, which is of God. It's, it's amazing now. I didn't even notice it. Let me just, let's just let's learn this together, shall we? There's a fine line between being destruction and being with the Lord, and that line is the pain of sin. Someone write that down because that's not in my notes. That's just got to be from the Lord. Okay, just write it down on one that blank. There's 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 that fine line there between what is destruction and what is of God. All right, so let's get back to it. Go and scout the land, he said. So the men went up and scouted Ai. 
After returning to Joshua, they report him, listen, this is my paraphrase. <laughs> There's no need. There ain't no need to send all of us. Don't send all the people, but send about two or 3,000. You know, it's just really general and vague, just two or 3,000. Send them back to Ai. Since the people of Ai are so few, don't wear all the people out. In other words, we don't need to work so hard. Relax. Drop your guard for a little bit. I mean, look what we've just done. We've crossed the Jordan. There's a pile of stones there. Jericho, there's a pile of stones there. Two or 3,000 should do it. So about 3,000 men went up, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down, it's amazing to me, two or 3,000, give or take 1,000. And then look what Scripture says. Struck down 36 of them. It didn't say 30 or 40. It didn't say less than 100. 36. An exact number. 1%. Well, look, I didn't, I'm not, listen, I, I know those 36 people were worthy and they were struck down. But in, the, in, in 3,000, if you're looking at battle for those that's been in the military, that would not be just catastrophic, would it? But look what happened. They fled. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from outside the gate to the quarries, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people's hearts melted. They had no wind left to blow a trumpet after marching around the city seven times on the seventh day. They didn't even remember marching around the city six times. They didn't remember draw, crossing that Jordan. They didn't remember Joshua going back and setting stones up and worshiping there. That was all gone. So God is allowing them to see the pain of sin. But go back in there. So this two or 3,000 men, it, it, this, this suggestion is based on a false assumption that Israel had defeated Jericho. Do you recall Israel did not defeat Jericho? Actually, all they had done is what we just talked about. They walked around the city one time a day for six days. On the seventh day, they walked around it seven times. They began to shout and blow trumpets. That's all they did. God took the city. They had forgotten, lest church, we often forget the promise the Lord gave through Moses in Exodus 14, 14. Write that down somewhere. Look at it later. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. So many times we want to gird up our loins and just take on the fight and say, let, let, we got to go. I ain't scared. We got to go. Let's make it happen, Captain. And we forget God says, I will fight for you. In the Christian life, few things are as dangerous as self-confidence based on pride instead of faith. Let me read that to you one more time. Let's let that digest just for a moment. In the Christian life, few things are as dangerous as self-confidence based on pride instead of faith. When God is doing great things in our lives, it is often easy to forget the source of our power or victories. During such times, I think it's imperative that we recall Scripture, Proverbs 16, 18, pops into mind. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. 
Following the suggestion of the spies, Joshua does send these 3,000 men out, and they are soundly defeated. Joshua, Joshua was caught totally off guard. Have you ever been there? Something just, I mean, just knocked you off your feet. You just didn't see it coming. It, I mean, it just really took you by surprise. That's what happened to Joshua. He was totally taken off guard. His emotions, don't miss that, so many times when we're taken by surprise and off guard, like Joshua, his emotions took over and he tore his clothes and fell to the earth, Scripture says. Can I suggest to you this morning that Joshua, though outwardly humble, in reality, he was more concerned about his own feelings of dismay than he was to get to the root of the problem. Does that happen to you and to me? When we're caught off guard, we say, we got this, we can do it. Cloak it in spirituality with the Lord's help. And then something like this happens, and we're caught off guard, our emotions take over. Look, look at Joshua's prayer. Again, let's read what we read when we stood together. Verses 7 through 9 this time. Oh, Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan? Who's he laying blame to? You're the reason we're here. Why did you bring us across the Jordan? And hand us over to the Amorites. If only we had been content and remained on the other side of the Jordan. What can I say, Lord? Now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies. It's the irony there is amazing to me. Israel didn't turn its back on its enemies. Israel turned its back on God. When the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Then he adds, then what will you do about your great name? Clearly, Joshua had lost perspective. In the midst of defeat, he forgot God's promise that he was going to give them the land. Had not the Lord just instructed Joshua to circumcise the sons of Israel as a sign of that promise? Had not they just remembered their great deliverance from Egypt with the Passover? And what about the memorial stones? If you recall, Joshua, in, in a spontaneous moment of worship, while they, were, while they were putting the stones on the bank, he ran back into the river to put up his own pile of stones. That was a... That was forgotten. And what about Jericho itself? I mean, don't you think that would linger in your mind? Let's walk around the city one time. Okay, next day, walk around the city one time. Then seventh day, let's walk around it seven times. Y'all shout and blow the horns. And phew, they came crumbling down. That would tend to stick with you. Thirty-six men perished and their hearts melted. And all these things were a distant memory. Joshua's reactions revealed that he was human, just like you and just like me. There is a fine line between the feelings of success and failure. One, one moment we can be elated with our achievements, and the short time later we can be depressed over our failures. When depressed and dismayed, listen, church, 
When depressed and dismayed, we often lose sight of God's overall plan for our lives, His promises, His previous victories, and His divine presence with us. Often God has to deal with us just as He did with Joshua. He has to remind us of the facts. And that church family can often be painful. Secondly, not only will you see the pain of sin, but the progression of sin. Verses 10 through 23, we won't read all of it, but let's just talk about it for a moment. Though Joshua's emotions, I don't want to miss this, were very real and very painful, they were surface feelings. He was too mature of a man to go down in deep despair and defeat. God knew. Man, that's so good. God knew that Joshua was feeling sorry for himself. Consequently, I believe, that's where the Lord met him, on that level. He said, rise up, stand up. Why have you fallen on your face? With this command and question, the Lord indicated that Joshua should have known what was wrong. If you go back and read chapter 6, he laid it out. If this happens, then destruction will come. Don't take any of the things set apart. That is for me. That is holy. Don't touch those things. Those go into the treasury. If you do, destruction will come. I mean, it's, it's a pretty easy one plus one equals two. So in this time, Joshua should have known maybe what was wrong. Had he stopped to think for a moment, he would have concluded that someone violated God's law regarding the ban on Jericho. Thus the Lord answered his own question with Scripture, verses 11 through 12. Look with me. Israel has sinned, God said. They have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. Just time out for a moment. Do you recall when we were reading the previous chapters of Joshua and Joshua was looking, he was scouting out Jericho. He went to look at it. And when he looked at it, he was just seeing, and all of a sudden he saw someone coming, and he said, are you for us or for them? And you remember what this is? I, neither. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Do you remember what Joshua did then? He fell as quick as he could for as long as he could and, and stayed there and worship. He fell down in worship. He's falling down not now in worship. He's falling down in, oh, no. What are we going to do? So the Lord is saying, Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen. Now, time out again. Nowhere is Achan listed yet. He's saying they, they, they. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put those things with their own belongings. Now it's getting specifics. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from the enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you. Man, can you imagine the echo chamber in Joshua's heart? Going back, and the Lord was with Joshua, and now he's hearing directly from the Lord, I will no longer be with you unless you remove can I parenthetically say, repent from among you what is set apart. The Lord followed this general revelation with some very specific instructions for solving 
the problem. Rather than immediately identifying Achan and those involved with him, the Lord spelled out a step-by-step method for discovering the culprit. Now, as a, did, you, did God know who it was? Y'all, y'all, okay, yes. Did Joshua know it was? No. Could God have told Joshua it was Achan? Yes. So why not? Have you ever thought that? Why don't you just say, Joshua, I see you, I hear you. It was Achan. It was Achan. Go look at his tent. It was him all along. But he didn't do that. First, all the children of Israel were to consecrate themselves before the Lord. Listen. All of them were to search their hearts. For in reality, they were all guilty of pride and having failed to trust God following their victory at Jericho. How easy is it for us as church folk to come into a setting like this and to honestly and sincerely anticipate God moving? But when the preacher or assistant preacher starts talking about things, you begin to think, "Mm mm-hmm, I know that's... I know who that could be. I know who needs to listen to that. Boy, they need, that is a wonderful opportunity to get their lives right with the Lord. So many times we may look at individuals here and there and forget to see our own sin. That's why God said everybody, everybody consecrate themselves. Everybody do that. So in this, you think for a moment of what's going on. Why did God use this unfolding tactic? Why didn't he just identify Achan? Personally, this is my fault. I believe there are two reasons. God wanted Israel to observe the process and never forget. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the dry mouth and wet hand? Can you imagine the, not just butterflies, but the absolute terror or fear? As every tribe, every clan, every family went before the Lord as these lots were cast, God wanted that to be seared into their memory. As each lot fell and each tribe, family, and household was identified, all Israel would have a chance to think hard and long about the seriousness, church, of violating the commandments of God. Write this down. Short memories often need dramatic experiences. Short memories often need dramatic experiences. Secondly, I believe God in His divine love and mercy, my thoughts, was once again offering a way of escape for a man who disobeyed Him. All this time. Can you imagine? This just didn't happen You know, like that. This took a while for every tribe, every clan, every household to go in front of Joshua and the elders. So this took a while. So I believe maybe the other reason God was doing this is to give Achan a chance, to let him have an opportunity to confess his sin, repent, and turn away from it. Had Achan immediately confessed and truly repented of his sin, he and his whole household might have been spared. 
Well, Chuck, that is assumption, isn't it? Well, it would be consistent with God's nature to do this, don't you think? For years later, he pardoned David, the king of Israel, who committed two horrible sins, which would have brought death, but because of David's repentant heart, the Lord spared him. God, I believe, was giving Achan time, just as he had done for the people of Jericho, by the way. His tribe was identified, his family, and finally his household. Still, Achan did not confess. It was only after the lot fell on him that he acknowledged his sin. He waited until his back was against the wall and he had no choice. His confession was forced. So that's not true confession. It was too late. Just as it will be for many on that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess who God is. Achan's acknowledgement clearly reveals the progression of sin. Three verbs. Lance, you touched on this in your message. Saw, covet, and took. That tells the whole story. Saw, covet, and took. Temptation. Listen, temptation, as a reminder of what my brother shared, temptation always begins with the eyes, followed by a thought that plants a desire. So to avoid sin, to talk about this sin, and to get toward repentance, we need to know the pain of sin. We need to get a grasp of the progression of sin. And finally this morning, the penalty for sin. The end of this story is tragic. Achan and his family and everything he owned, including what he had stolen, were completely destroyed with fire. Look with me in verses 22 and following of chapter 7. Achan replied to Joshua, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. Then I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak, 200 silver shekels and a bar of gold. I coveted them and took them. You can see for yourself. They are concealed in the ground inside my tent with the money under my cloak. Verse 24. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, and the bar of gold, his sons and daughters, his ox, donkey and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? Today the Lord will trouble you. So all Israel stoned them to death. They buried their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over him a large pile of rocks that remains to this day. Then the Lord turn from his burning anger. Now you may be thinking, well, gosh, his whole family? Think about it. Those tents weren't very big. They were in close quarters. Somebody's digging a hole in the tent. You're probably going to know about it. So you're complicit. You saw what was going on. They had just as much opportunity to say, no, listen, We've done something wrong here. We need to confess. There's sin in my heart. I need to turn back to my holy God. 
I don't need to stay here. Church, we dare not let pride cause us to fall. Here's some takeaway thoughts. You'll see these on the screen. Just jot these down as we close together. God is a holy God. He's not somebody upstairs. He's not the man on high. God is holy. This Old Testament passage is one of the most sobering in the Bible. Quite honestly, it's difficult to share. But it teaches us that God indeed is a holy God. Listen, though He is patient and long-suffering, He cannot persistently tolerate sin, especially when it is flagrant and it's committed in the light of His full and direct revelation. God is a holy God. Another thought that came to my heart that I wanted to share with you, the more light we have, the more we are accountable. It's dramatically illustrated in the life of Achan. God revealed himself again and again, not only through visible signs and miracles, but by direct commands. Years before, he warned Israel against this kind of sin, that to indulge in it would bring judgment on an entire household. To make sure they understood the seriousness of this law, God reviewed the matter for Israel before they entered Jericho, going back to chapter 6. And it was in full light of God's direct warning that Achan disobeyed God. In many respects, I think it would be just as serious as walking to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and just pushing over the Ark of the Covenant, placing it with some pagan idol. This was a very serious form of idolatry. Another thought that came to my mind yesterday and as I prepared you know, some weeks ago and trying to get this roughed out as the Lord gave it in my mind, another thought that we can take away this morning, can this kind of judgment happen today? You ever thought about that? Can this response from God happen today? To answer that question, we need to review what Paul wrote in his Corinthian letter. He was disturbed with the leaders who were destroying the unity in the church And he issued by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a stern warning. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 through 17. Write it down. Look at it later. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Do you not know, all of you, that you are a temple, that is the church, of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, all of you? If any man destroys the temple, that is the church of God, God will destroy him, for the temple, that is the church of God, is holy, and that is what you are, all of you. I know of times when God has severely judged people that I've known, Christians, who have flagrantly and deliberately destroyed unity in the church because of their own selfish and carnal motives. Though this may not involve death, it has been serious and painful judgment. In these cases, 
The sin has been so obvious that no one can misinterpret what has happened. We must remind ourselves that even the Bible records very few times when God breaks through with this kind of judgment. Listen, but when he does, it falls on people who have willfully disobeyed God in the full light of his revealed will and power. Then finally, a takeaway that we all need to embrace this morning. If I can be so bold but confident of this being true, all have sinned. God is holy and he hates sin. But the primary lesson I believe is that in the very real sense, we are all under the ban. So easy to say, Joshua lost perspective. Achan, what was he thinking? He put himself under the ban. Church, we are all under that ban. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, Paul states, there is none righteous, not even one. This is why God instituted the sacrifice in the Old Testament. This is why he eventually sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die once for all for the sins of the world. When we receive Jesus Christ, when we believe that he died for us personally, he justifies us and makes us righteous in his sight. The blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from all sin. 1 John 1.19. Chuck Swindoll tells a story of Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane. Has anybody ever heard of Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane? He was the chief surgeon of Kane Summit Hospital in New York City, practicing his specialty for 37 years. Kane became convinced that general anesthesia was too risky and local anesthesia could bypass some of the problems he had seen among patients. He wanted to prove his theories, but he couldn't find a taker. Surprising, isn't it? He, did, he couldn't find someone who said, I'll go under the knife, my eyes wide open. Just couldn't find it. Everybody he talked to was afraid of waking up during surgery. I get that. My cataract surgery, I heard them talking and stuff. And I, said, I just wanted earplugs. I don't care about the anesthesia. Said, I don't want to hear you call for whatever instrument. So I, I get that. They didn't want to feel the pain in the sharp thing that probed them. Cain had performed abdectomies thousands of times, so he decided on a particular procedure that he, when he found a subject. The patient was prepped and brought into the operating room, and local anesthesia was administered to the area as the surgery got underway. Y'all do know what local anesthesia It's not the whole body. You're not on that, ooh, that's good stuff. No, it's just local. And so the patient just didn't have all the good stuff, just the local stuff, just making sure we're all on the same page. So they did that. Surgery got underway. The surgeon came to the right side of the abdomen, made a cut across that narrow section, and went in. He tied off the blood vessels. He found the appendix, excised it, and finished with a neat but simple work of suturing. Actually, the patient felt very little discomfort and was up, up, up and about the next afternoon. This whole story is quite remarkable since it happened in 1921. 
when people who had appendectomies often stayed in the hospital for about a week. The medical world considered it a milestone, but it was also a milestone in courage because you know why now? The patient and the doctor were one and the same. He did that on himself. I thought, wow, if only Aiken had done the same thing. He should not have taken the plunder, that's true. But once the process began and the defeat at Ai had people on their knees, it was time to operate on himself. So that's the invitation. All have sinned. It's none righteous, not one. I love coming to church. I love coming to this church. I love having barbs with the pastor when he's not here especially. But when I read something from God's Word like today, I can't have but a moment of sobriety saying, Lord, I, there's no way I can preach. That's me. I'm guilty. So in those quiet moments yesterday and this morning, and God reminded me of the people I love that I call my church family. And I say with Great fear, but confidence that we are all sinners. All of us. Saved, if you have your profession in Christ, saved by His grace. But we should never enter into such a place that we're on our knees running from something, but always on our knees going to Him. So if you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. So what is the Lord speaking to you about? I know without a doubt that His Word does not return void. So... Could you do this in your mind, just kind of do this on your own, just have this sentence says, I, comma, blank, insert your name, know that if I died tonight that I would spend eternity with Christ in heaven. If you can say that with no doubt and all certainty, then the part of the invitation, this is for you. Am I following him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Is there anything in my life as a believer in Christ that would cause me to fall on my knees running from something instead of falling on my knees going towards something? If so, then I believe with all my heart the precepts and principles of Scripture says it's time to repent of that, whatever it is. Do not have your back get against the wall, but go to the Lord now.
Say, Lord, that's me. I confess that. I repent that. Do not let me be a reason that this church family is not seeing and achieving everything you want it to have. I believe that's where the Lord has us. Now, if you're in this group this morning or online and you have looked at that sentence and you put your name there, I fill in the blank, and you say, Chuck, I, I just can't say that. I don't know for certain if I died tonight that I would spend eternity with Christ. Can I share with you some very good news? If you hear my voice, that means you're living. You're still breathing. And if you know that statement be true, now is the time to make that statement absolutely true. Now is the time for you to say, I need Christ. I recognize my sin. I confess that. I repent from that. I want to be a believer in Christ. So that's it. It's twofold. I know the Lord's working. It's up to us to respond. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would find us obedient, knowing that we all have sinned, and God, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, those sins are there to be forgiven. I pray, Father, for those that have not accepted that, that this be the moment, this be the day, this be the exact location and place that someone in this room or online says, I need Jesus. And Lord, in that same way, we pray in Jesus' name that those who have professed Christ as King, Master and Savior, Father, allow us to feel what maybe others felt as they were drawn and looked at by tribe and clan and family. And let us ask, Lord, show me my heart. And I pray, Father, in this moment of invitation that the redeemed say, Father, I repent. So, Lord, bring those things to our mind. May you find us obedient in how we respond to your Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm about to say in Jesus' name, amen. And when I do, I want everyone to stand to their feet and respond as God's call you. So, Father, we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Everyone stand.